0: Welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 356. The Drebblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, An Exodus of Wings by Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam. We're excited to welcome Drabblecast guest producer this week, Adam Pratt, and invite him to the stage. Adam Pratt lives in Kansas, but asks that you not hold that entirely against him, as he's had a quality education, has never been to Oz, and hasn't worn overalls since he was a toddler dressed in Osh-Kosh-Bagosh. As the former assistant editor of Starship Sofa, he still fiddles around with audio, science fiction, writing, and editing when he can, as indicated by the treble cast sucking him into our own wet thrashing folds with relative ease. We're delighted to have Adam on board. Adam's the author of a disappointingly slim volume of short stories, called Frame Story, Seven Stories of SF, Fantasy, Horror, and Human. The title story was a finalist in the Stuff You Should Know Podcast Horror Fiction Contest, which I've never heard about, although I listen to that podcast all the time, which makes me question most of what I thought I knew about a podcast called Stuff You Should Know. He works full-time as the public relations coordinator at McPherson College and is working on his master's degree with three young children. They're his children, I think. I don't think they're working on master's degrees, but who knows? Seems like everyone's in graduate school these days. The author of our story this week is Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam. Stuffelbeam's fiction and poetry has appeared in magazines such as Clark's World, Strange Horizons, Daily Science Fiction, and Goblin Fruit. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast program, and she reviews short fiction on her blog, Short Story Review. You can visit her at Bonniejoestuffelbeam.com or on Twitter at Bonnie Joe So, without further ado, we bring you An Exodus of Wings by Bonnie Joe Stuffelbeam.
1: An Exodus of Wings by Bonnie Jo Stuffelbeam. Part One, The Shower. Before Heidi came along, Michael did everything he could to keep the damn fairies out of his apartment. Every night he washed and dried his dishes, never leaving one dripping in the drying rack. Always fished food particles from the drain, took the trash out, sealed his cereal in glass jars. But then he met her, Heidi, her name was, as she told him through hair that kept blowing over her mouth. Such long hair, too long, always in the way. Once she became a permanent fixture in his apartment, he lost the drive to keep clean. Love does that. Makes you forget the rigorous regime of your single life, the boring ritual that once kept you busy enough to not feel alone with the TV and your thoughts. And once Michael ceased his diligent cleaning, let the dishes pile in the sink in leaning towers, let the old rice grains and botamachi crumbs rot in the drain, the fairies took over. They found their way in through the pipes and the hole in his pantry wall. At first, just a handful, then more. Soon, anytime Michael and Heidi returned from a silent dinner or flipped on the kitchen light after emerging from the bedroom for some aminato or chocolate peanut butter, they were greeted by a flurry of wings and flailing limbs the same checked pattern of his dinner plates, a camouflage, as the fairies scattered. When Heidi wasn't around, Michael made a game of chasing the fairies with a fly swatter through his overcrowded living room dodging his oversized computer station, the pillows his mother had shipped him from Japan to liven up what she considered a dump, and his life-size poster of Michael Jackson, his American namesake. After his rampage, he sprayed his walls with vinegar and scrubbed away their blue-green blood, peeled their flattened bodies off, and tossed them out in the community compost bin. But he'd noticed how Heidi's eyes followed the fairies as they collected around the faucet water any time he turned it on, and he hadn't dared harm them in her presence. She was so difficult to understand that he clung to this little way to please her like he did to her hand in the night. Some women, he knew, went gooey even for pests, like those teenage girls in the subway who fed the rats. He didn't worry so much about the fairies when in her company anyhow, partly because Michael and Heidi spent most of their days between the sheets. Lying beside her in a room lit only by the humming street lights outside his window, which extended the shadows across his puny abdomen and under her narrow eyes. He would run his hand along her belly and shiver against her skin, smooth as stone. When making love, she was like a stone, cold and still, but deep beneath, he felt her buzz, as if she wanted to burst apart and scatter her pieces across his Iron Man bedspread. After a haze of three weeks with little effort on Michael's part to eliminate the pest problem, and the fairies were a problem, breaking into his packets of dry noodles and scattering them across the kitchen floor, teaching themselves how to turn on the faucet when Michael wasn't home so that his water bill appeared in the triple digits. Depositing their pellet scat on his kitchen counters, the fairies migrated to the bathroom. There were so many of them now that they couldn't fit in all the kitchen hiding places anymore, and no longer did they scatter in the light or the sound of footsteps, as they had realized they were in no danger as long as Heidi was around, which was nearly always. Now when Michael showered, alone, as Heidi refused to shower with anyone, the fairies danced through the water spray, the beat of their wings like a fleet of tiny helicopters. In bed, Heidi was a welcome hiatus from the frantic flapping. Even though he knew her silence was troubled, forced. It still comforted him to be able to not speak. He could count the conversations they'd had on two hands. Her presence was more to him than words. A comfort like a heating pad, a child's stuffed bear. These youthful traditions matured into a woman he wanted to crack so he could keep her. But she was solid all the way through. Then one night he woke to a single laugh like a brief night song, muffled. The space beside him empty, he rose and padded into the hall, his slippers thudding against the carpet. Steamy light leaked from the cracks around the door. He heard the shower water falling. He opened the door. The curtain was closed. He pulled it back. Heidi stood beneath the stream of water, her head dropped back, her hair stringy wet. She must have sensed him there, for eventually her head jerked to the side, but it felt as though time had stopped, and he stared at her for what, looking back, seemed too long a time for her to have remained oblivious to him. Later he wondered if he really had taken in all the detail he remembered, or if he'd made it up, dreamt it, if he had only seen a glimpse before she noticed him and wrapped her arms around her chest. Nevertheless, he couldn't forget how she looked. Fairies balanced on her shoulders, digging into her skin with their toes. They wove in and out of her hair, sliding down the strands until they dropped to the bottom of the tub, changing color from the reflectionless black of her hair to the stark white of the tub as soon as their feet landed against its surface. Two of them perched on her stiff brown nipples so that it appeared her breast had gone misshapen in the night. She wore a closed mouth smile that spoke of something he would never understand, an eyes closed kind of feeling he had never felt, would never feel. It was then he knew that he would lose her. Part 2. Puck's Pest Control I can always tell an asshole just from where they live. Last night, on the job, I was going to meet this guy I'd already diagnosed as such. He lived over off Bluestone in these trashy apartments that had been built for rich white dickheads. When he opened the door, I was surprised to see that he wasn't, in fact, white as I thought he'd be. He was paler white. My white. The white of those crazy beach mushrooms my immigrant great-grandfather used to cook up all the time. I didn't revise my judgment. Probably he was already judging my appearance, dreadlocks and a parka and my decidedly western gut. Probably he took one look at my name tag, Akira, and sneered at the fact that I clearly speak little of the language. Soon as he opened the door, the skunk smell of weed upheaved me. I coughed. I knew his type. Never grew up, too sheltered by his frightened parents to notice that life is supposed to change once you're out on your own. Probably he'd been blowing his smoke on the fairies, making them loopy. Probably he thought it was funny to torture the poor things like that. I mean, I enjoy a toke every now and again but I wouldn't dream of inflicting a helpless animal unaware of what's coming up at him like a harmless cloud outside with a surprise stoning. They're all over, he said, motioning around the kitchen. His apartment was pretty clean for how infested it was. Eyes peered from the cracks in the cabinet doors and (gasps) wings glinted from the top of the refrigerator. All I saw in terms of a mess was a single coffee mug in the sink filled with water. It was the only target I had for him. "'Can't leave stuff like that,' I said, dumping the water. "'They don't need a lot to live off.' "'Doesn't matter. They figured out how to turn on the faucets.' I wanted to smile, but I stopped myself. Clever buggers. "'How'd it get so infested? Looks like you're a pretty clean dude.' The guy shrugged, looked at the floor. "'It's none of your business,' he said, and I could tell from how he said it that there was a girl involved somehow. Or a guy, whatever.' He did have a Michael Jackson cutout in the next room. I'm paying you to get rid of them, so just do it already. I nodded. Gotta bomb the place. Best if you get gone for a while. Come back in two hours. Got somewhere to go? The dude huffed. I'm not paying you until they're gone. Why not, I thought. Can't waste Daddy's small change. But I waved him on, because I couldn't stand the smell of him anymore. Like mothballs. When he left, I realized it wasn't him just the apartment. Even so, the next part was my favorite. I lay on his Iron Man bed, looked in his bedside drawers full of condoms, sat in front of the computer that took the place where a television should be. In his bathroom, a fairy family hovered around his bathtub. In a trash can, I found a new looking toothbrush and a near full bottle of women's shampoo. 30 minutes before he was due to come back, I lugged a huge crate from the truck up the stairs to his apartment. I opened the crate's gate, and the honey-sugar smell filled the room. The fairies emerged from hiding, an exodus of wings. As they disappeared into the honey crate, their skin changed from cabinet white to wood brown. They were too busy licking the honey off their fingers to realize that their feet were stuck in the honey goo that coated the crate floor. Then I did the bathroom. The fuck is that? the dude asked when he returned, reeking of scotch, his face red. It surprised me that he wasn't a beer drinker. As I would have guessed. For the bodies, I said. For a minute I thought I saw his humanity in a quiver of his lips, but he turned away too fast to be sure, fished around in the cabinet above the sink, pulled down a checkbook. Thank you, he said, gripping my scarred hand as he handed me a check a hundred dollars over my quoted price. His name was on the top left corner. Michael. Also a surprise. Not even a traditional name. And below that, The paper claimed he owned a website design company. I felt red in the cheeks for a second, afraid to look him in the face having been so wrong about him. I folded and pocketed the check, then hauled the crate back to the truck. I felt the warmth of his touch even later, in my own duplex apartment, on the couch where I watched the fairies unfurl from the honey and crawl their way from the crate. Beside me sat the book I was trying to convince myself to read. The solitary activity only ever fed my loneliness, as I knew I would have no one to share the book with once I reached the last page. And I had stuffed the book with the pink eviction notices that my landlord had been peppering my door with for the last week. The woman never liked me, and then she found an excuse. On a routine inspection, she discovered my freeloading roommates gathered around the sink, sipping from the water bowl I'd left for them. Once free, the fairies scurried up into the rafters. Some of them needed me to wipe honey from them the ones who accidentally stuck their legs together. I helped these emerge from the crate and with a damp cloth cleaned them down. They nipped at my skin. My hands were already covered with circular bite marks the size of aphids. My hands will always be clouded blue and purple. Monster hands. If I shone a flashlight into the ceiling, I would see a pattern that at first might appear to be a million tiny dolls on the beams, dangling their feet. The wooden floor of my apartment was always dirty, with specks of feces and urine, even though I cleaned nightly. I guess it was still a reason to kick someone out of their home. I'd trained a lot of them to use the toilet, and they loved watching the water swirl down the bowl, but it took time, and the newer ones had yet to learn. I didn't know what to do with them all. If I left them, the landlord would bomb the place for sure, and I couldn't take them with me, couldn't keep living under their shadows. Waking in the night to their dance across the mountain of my stomach. Couldn't keep buying pounds of bread just to feed the house guests who would have been happier on their own. They deserved the air, the sun, real clouds, a new beginning, a clean floor. <laughs>
2: your body and into the next you found yourself sitting on a rock beside a lake in the park the Sun glared but you covered yourself in an emotional shell so thick that not even the Sun so much harsher these days could get through you had just left a man's apartment for the final time the last swan song you had broken it off with him a week ago but you had gone back you told yourself it was to see the fairies you could have been lying because when you got there and the fairies were gone, he said he'd lured them away with sugar water. You fell into his bed anyway, as if his touch would make them return. Afterwards, you came to the park because of the water. You loved the water. You loved the way it listened. How, when you stuck your finger into the chill, ripples radiated from that single point of your intrusion all the way to the other shore. Michael did not listen that way. He tried, but failed. He did not listen to you because you did not talk, and he was foolish enough to believe that talking was the only way to see into someone. Because he felt that way, you talked to him as little as you could. Ripples rolled in from a fairy landing on the other side of the shore. You wondered what the fairies wanted to say to the lake. You wanted to swim across the way and find it. Let it know that you know that there are many ways to communicate, that even fairies and people can tell each other secrets. You'd seen it happen had marks like little bruises on your shoulders for proof. You stood, bent to grab your purse. That was when you saw the ferry on the rock, smash where you'd sat on it. Suddenly, you felt too large to live. You wanted to jump out of your body and into the next. There was a feeling in your stomach, like a rock you might have swallowed. You looked around. The next body turned out to be a fat Japanese man with dreadlocks on a bench, only a few feet from you wearing a wool parka despite the sun. Your ex was of Japanese descent, and perhaps that is why you wouldn't stop looking at the man on the bench. You no longer wanted to be in the next body you saw. The man had a huge wooden crate beside him. He looked up at you. He nodded. I've killed it, you cried, because it felt like you had to tell someone, or it would be in vain, the fairy's death. I sat on it, and I killed it. The men looked away, then back. He wondered if this was because he found you attractive, as you'd been told you weren't bad on the eyes. Then he walked towards you, his steps wide and unsure. When he got to you, he peered down at the ferry. By then, you'd forgotten about the one across the lake. So what, he said. I've killed hundreds before. Own a company, or used to, I guess. I did it for money, which is worse. You remembered being a kid, eyes in the dark under your childhood bed, the kiss of wings against your cheek as you slept. In the morning, you used to wake with welts. Your parents thought you caused them yourself and dragged you to the doctor, again and again. Once you were older, you no longer heard the songs. Now you only dreamt them, and you felt you'd lost more than the song that used to cover your parents' fighting. The sounds of love souring like milk in the fridge. Before, you said. Before what? He shrugged. Before I lost the stomach for it. You stared into the dirt, disappointed. You'd hoped for something more profound. Want to see something? he asked. The man showed you a world of golden lava floors, and fairies posed like dolls inside the crate. Only they weren't posed, you realized, as the light trickled in on them posing, eyes closed, leaning against each other, and the walls and the floors, playing dead. You knew they were only playing, because one of them opened an eye and then shut it again. They're alive, you said. Of course they are, he said. I have to let them go. What's stopping you? You asked. But he didn't hear you, and you didn't have to know the answer to know the answer. Throughout your life, you'd also had a hard time keeping friends, keeping people around. The man looked out at the water, and you wanted him to understand, without you saying, that the lake was a kind of friend that would never leave. Instead, you reached over and grabbed his hand and squeezed. His hand was like a purple catcher's mitt, but it didn't scare you. Together you knelt at the lake shore beside a sign that read, Do not feed the fairies, and you pulled each fairy from the honey, and dipped its feet into the water they bit you and you winced and squeezed your eyes shut but did not stop did not stop did not stop until all of them were free you sat with him on the bench and your purple hands touched only at the sides and you didn't feel romantic not sure if you ever would but he felt like a puzzle and the fairies thick as clouds across the sky you buried the dead one in a grave you dug with your aching hands. Afterward, you washed your hands in the water pump. You swore that this time you would keep them clean, that you wouldn't go back to the apartment where you no longer belonged.
0: And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget the Drabblecast People's Choice Awards are going on right now in the Drabblecast discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org Go check it out. Nominate your favorite stories, Drabbles, episode art, and Twabbles. Support your favorite artists. Moving on to our 100-character story winner this week. For the second week in a row, Drew did this, with this one here. The hair wasn't right. He turned it back to front and dabbed away blood. Flawless, he said, through the wet mouth hole. think you can write a good story with only 100 characters not counting spaces give it a shot we run a contest through our forums each week and we pick a winner and post it early on twitter and then run it on the show you might be next week's winner you never know all right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, The TravelCast is produced with the Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Melissa McClanahan. Melissa Arts and Designs out of Cincinnati, Ohio, where she lives with her long-suffering husband and evil kitty overlord. You can find her work at www.liminalworks.net. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, Special Anthologies Editor Nikki Drayden, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, you will lose her. The of nightmares grim and conjured forth rise loathsome